0: Much better to rely on the voice of God, the Word of God, and to share the Word of God with a person instead of claiming to have the voice of God in your own head, right? Now, if you would like to cite a scripture, if you'd like to quote a passage to someone, point them to a psalm to help them in that situation, that's clearly the voice of God. That's the Word of God. We know that, all right? So that's what we rely on. So we find here that Jesus knows the future. He announces it ahead of time. Why? Why? because this is an attribute of God. Perfect knowledge of the future is a prerogative of God alone. This is a really important. Um, this is a divine fingerprint on the Word of God itself. We'll get to that in just a moment, getting ahead of myself. But um, we want to be very careful with this. And in this passage at Deuteronomy 18, 18 through 22, if you're still there, you have, you kind of have two warnings. You have Moses announcing the future prophet that is to come, the great prophet. What are they supposed to do? They're supposed to listen to him. If they don't listen to him, they will die. And we recall back when Jesus was feeding the thousands with the bread and the fish, uh, somewhere around 20,000 most likely that he's feeding. And they call him the prophet. But yet when he begins to teach about who he really is, they all fall away and no one stays with him. They want him to be the prophet. They want him to get him to give them free food and free fish and bread and multiply that out every single day of their life, but they don't want to listen to him. When he begins to teach who he is, that I am God, you must eat of me, my body is bread, it, they, they reject it. Uh, he, they, he goes on to tell them, as God gave, uh, gave your descendants the manna from heaven, now God has given you the bread of life. I am that bread of life. They all go away. So they want to acknowledge him as a prophet. They see him as very, someone very special from God, but they don't want to listen to him. And you see it over and over and over. What does that mean? That means they're going to die, according to this prophecy in Deuteronomy 18. And this is not just a physical death. It's no surprise that people will die, but this is a foreshadowing of that spiritual death. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, physical death is foreshadowing the spiritual death. And that's what Moses is saying. God is announcing through Moses here, if you don't listen to him, if you don't believe in the gospel, if you don't have faith in Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins, you are going to spiritually die. So you have two kind of warnings there. You have the false prophet that uh, is supposed to die for claiming to have the voice of God but does not. They're not supposed to listen to him. But who are they supposed to listen to or else they will die? is the true prophet, the great prophet, which is the Christ, is the Messiah. Uh, Look with me over at Isaiah 41. We're done with Deuteronomy, but save your place in John. Look at Isaiah 41, 21 through 24. So as I said earlier, perfect knowledge of the future is the prerogative of God alone. No one else knows the future perfectly like God. And this is extremely important because it sets the Bible apart from every book on in the world. And extremely important to Jesus as he announces this to the disciples, something that's going to happen in the future. But Isaiah 41 is about idols and God saying that letting them know that he is different than the idols. And, and one of the ways that he is different than the idols is he knows what's going to happen in the future, and the idols do not. Uh, Look at verse 21, and he's talking about the idols setting their case forth. He says, "...set forth your case," says the Lord. "...bring your proofs," says the king of Jacob. "...let them bring them, and tell us what is to happen." So here's the test. tell Tell us what is to happen. "...tell us of the former things what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come." Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods, do them, do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing, and abomination is he who chooses you. So, powerful passage here. He's saying these idols, these false gods that you worship, bring them forward. Do they know what happened in the past Uh, You think of God's revelation to Moses about how the earth was formed, etc. God revealed that to Moses. Do they know what's going to happen in the future? If so, let them declare it. What's going to happen hereafter? Look at verse 23. Tell us what is to come so that we may know that you are God's. But what does he say? They're an abomination. It's a total waste. They can't predict anything. They can't know anything. They don't even exist truly. Uh, So this is a test, you might say, a proof To know that God is God. Do the prophecies that God puts forth come true? And they absolutely do. So this fulfilled prophecy is one of the key marks of the Bible that sets it apart from every other book. There is nothing else like this. Uh, Fulfilled prophecy is the divine fingerprint upon the Bible, and the same is true of Jesus. So there is no other supposed holy book on earth that has the fulfilled prophecy like the Bible has in it. And I say it's a divine fingerprint because only God has knowledge of all things at once, and only God can announce exactly what's going to happen in the future. They can put it in the prophet's mouth way back here, we see it come true here, and we know that not only is he God, but this is the Word of God as well. Now this is the point. That Jesus is getting at there as he's talking to his disciples in verse 19. The disciples are to know that Jesus is I am by his knowledge of the future. And this is another one of those I am statements. There's, there's seven uh, I am statements that are followed. I am followed by the predicate. I am the great shepherd. I am the shepherd. I am the light, etc. I am the bread. Uh, but here's another I am statement. It's the same same thing, except there's not a comparison afterwards. But this is that Exodus 3.14 statement where Moses says, Who shall I say is sending me? And from the burning bush, God says, I am who I am. Tell them, I am has sent you. And so this, he takes on that name of God here. So I'm telling you this beforehand so that you will know what? I am God. So he's saying this, this prophecy, this knowledge of the future, you're to look back on this, and it takes them a while, but finally they're like, oh, wow, he knew all this ahead of time. Who only knows all things ahead of time? God, he is I am. He is truly the great I am. So this is, he announces these things ahead of time, so they will know that he is the great I am. Let's move on to verse 20. Verse 20, he continues, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now, this, this sentence, if you just read it straight through, verse 17, 18, 19 through 20, keep going, it seems just, it seems abrupt. It kind of seems out of place. He's saying, hey, I'm telling you these ahead of, these things ahead of time so that you'll believe that I am. Then all of a sudden he's talking about uh, sending, right? It seems out of place, but uh, they, this is something they're going to have to wrestle with. Jesus has already told them that his hour has come, that he is about to be lifted up. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed. And for for what, their mind, all that they're thinking, all is lost. And you, you fast forward, you think, is that what goes on in their head shortly after Jesus is, is taken? Absolutely. They, they run scared. They hide. Uh, that, that road to Emmaus in Luke 24, they're, they're completely distraught. The other disciples are hiding, and they don't know what to do. Uh, what is going to happen? The Messiah, the Christ, uh, the Son of David is now gone. But yet, this passage is extremely important. Uh, Jesus had been announcing that he had been sent from God, this, that sent I think we looked at it a few weeks ago over a dozen times jesus announces that he has been sent from god and about the equivalent uh jesus announces that that he has been sent by god the father and that they are together and in order to get to the father as we'll get to in john fourteen six, you must go through the son jesus says i am the light i i am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me so god the father sends a son They must go through the Son to get to the Father. But now there's an addition added. Look closely what it's going to be. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So previously to this point, the main emphasis has been, I have been sent by God. I have been sent by God the Father. I have been sent by God the Father. In order to get to the Father, you must go through me. But now there's an addition. It is that Jesus is going to be gone. He's already told him he's going to be lifted up. So what's going to happen? Uh, He's telling them these things ahead of time so they'll they'll know that he is the great I am. But now he's saying, I am going to send you. And the way that people will get to the Father is through faith in me. And I'm authorizing you now. You are the ones that are going to be sent. Uh, The disciples, another word for students, become apostles. That's why later on we don't see the word disciples used as much for the the, the disciples in the Gospels. Instead, we see the word apostles throughout the book of Acts. They are the ones who are sent. Now, in spite of the betrayal, the death, the resurrection, ascension, Jesus is now going to empower the apostles to carry on that messianic ministry. That even though he is now gone, and even though he'll be dead, but rise, be ascended into heaven they're going to be empowered, they're going to be sent to proclaim the gospel so people will be saved through faith in Christ. Does that happen? Yeah, fast forward over to Acts. Hold your place there and look at Acts chapter 1. Look at Acts chapter 1. There's a lot here. I'm going to read verses 1 through verse 9 I think. Acts chapter 1 uh, verses 1 through 9. So Acts of course takes up after Jesus has died, after the resurrection. uh, And and now uh, Luke is writing to the same man he's writing about when he writes the book of Luke uh, to Theophilus. And he picks up where that leaves off, basically. Look here in verse 1. "...in the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when He was taken up after He had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen." It is empowered now, and that he has promised to send them the Holy Spirit to empower them to be witnesses. Uh, Will their witness work even without Christ being physically present? Yes. Right? This is what we see on the day of Pentecost. Peter stands up. He proclaims the gospel. The life, the death, the resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. He dies for their sins. It's the fulfillment of prophecy. What are those people supposed to do? They are supposed to believe in that Christ. And repent of their sins. And what did we find? 3,000 people are saved and baptized that day. People were added to their number daily from then on. The number grows to 5,000. Then they can no longer keep count of how many people are being saved. So they, you know, Father sends a son. The Son sends the apostles, the apostles are proclaiming the gospel, and people are being saved through faith in Christ, and now they're made right with God. And the same is true to some degree with us today as well. We go forward with that gospel. People are saved by the gospel, and they are made right with God the Father through Jesus Christ. So the sending of the disciples becomes important. Now let's go back to John. Look at verse 21. John chapter 13, verse 21. Look at verse 21 through 25, we'll take this section kind of all together. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in His spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray Me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom He spoke. One of His disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to Him to ask Jesus of whom He was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to Him, Lord, who is it? Now, this is really interesting because Jesus announced multiple times here that one of them is going to betray him. And in our minds, we often think of Judas just looking like an absolute villain and everyone going, obviously, it's Judas, right? And you don't see anything like that here. And you don't see anything about his character being revealed that's different from the other disciples' character. There's nothing in the way that he looked, nothing in the way that he carried himself, nothing morally they could point to that's saying, oh, obviously he is a sneaky snake and we all know it. In fact, we see the opposite of this. He is trusted. He's trusted with their finances. He's a highly trusted disciple, supposed student of Christ so much so that they are all perplexed and they don't know who it is. that he's. Someone's going to betray him? And they're like, who could this possibly be? They all see themselves as equally uh, following Christ. And no one, we don't even have a hint of this here, and I think this is important uh, that John is laying this out, Matthew lays it out as well, that they don't have a clue who this betrayer is among them. This is, in other words, Judas is is. Great at camouflage, putting on the Christian camouflage. All right, uh, look, Judas, though an unbeliever, you might say, learned to act like a disciple so well that he completely fooled the other disciples. Look how Matthew records this. Hold your place there. Look at Matthew chapter twenty-six, verse twenty through twenty-five. Very similar, but just just speaks of it a little bit differently. So John has them asking, hey "Lord, who is it?" They don't have a clue who is going to be. Matthew twenty six twenty through twenty five. Similarly, but a little bit different here. States, when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, "Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me." And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, "Is it I, Lord?" He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. So here you have every every disciple again. Like, Like Judas is so far off the radar That they are looking at themselves introspectively saying, man, maybe it's me. I know it can't be any of them. So you kind of have them, is it it me? Am I the one? And the point of this is that Judas is so far off the radar. His camouflage is so good that they're doubting themselves before they would even doubt Judas and Judas takes up the same vernacular that they are doing, the same vernacular of humility, saying, "Is it I, Lord?" And is it I, Lord? And gets to him, and oh, is it I, Lord? And then Jesus even basically affirms that, right? He says, "It uh, you have said so." But the disciples are so convinced uh, that it, that it's just so perplexing that it could be that they almost justify Judas's departure. Uh, Look at verse 26, let's see, let's move on down to that. Jesus answered, it is, oh sorry, go back to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. And go back to John 13 verse 26. Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Again, so similar to Matthew, right? So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him Jesus said to him, What you are doing, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So, here you see the disciples, John is reflecting on that night, just saying how naive they all were. And even though Jesus basically lays it out, this is who it is right here in their minds, they still can't believe it, and they're just thinking, no, Judas has the money, he takes care of the money, he's going to give to the poor, which was common during the feast of the Passover, and they, 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 they have no idea. And that's John's point, they have, they have no idea that he is going to be the one to betray Jesus, which is really fascinating here, um, if you think about that, because you have, you have someone who acts like a disciple, They've been with the disciples for three years. He's been with Jesus, but yet his heart remains wicked. Earlier we found out that, that he was stealing money, right? He was he was greedy. Uh, when Mary uses the, the expensive oil to put on Jesus' feet and bathe, bathe his feet, he's mad because he could have spent that money elsewhere. We find out later. But as far as the camouflage, it is so good that they cannot tell any difference at all, which is... One, it's, al- it's alerting that being around Christianity does not necessarily mean that, that you personally are a Christian. Uh, being around Christians, being around sound doctrine, being around perfect doctrine, being around Jesus Christ himself teaching nonstop does not mean that you personally are a believer. And this is something that each, each person should ask themselves. Reflect on that. Just because I'm around sound doctrine, just because I'm around other Christians, does not necessarily mean that I am a Christian. Is there faith in Jesus Christ? Do I repent of my sins, or am I a pretender, like like Judas was, right? So make sure there is real faith, and at the same time also acknowledge that that could be the case with any group of believers. Uh, There can be such good camouflage that even the disciples couldn't tell the difference. Uh, if that Judas was the betrayer so so keep those things in mind uh, as we look at look at that last passage there verses 26 through uh, through 20 29 uh, that we find that Satan entered into him uh, Satan entered into him there in verse 27 now if you look back at verse 12 uh there and then, in, in, in uh, we find out that he had been. Or, sorry, in chapter twelve, he had been stealing money. We found that out. In chapter thirteen, we see the devil is working with Jesus, uh, with his heart. They're in one accord with the betrayal of Jesus. But here, you have something more deliberate, more intentional, where Satan enters into him. Something we might might refer to as possession. There's something even greater going on at this moment, at this exact time. Judas was already greedy. He already loved money more than he wanted to follow Christ. He was there for the money. New evil was not created in him, but this evil was fostered, and Satan enters into him to to betray Jesus for money. Uh, So fascinating thing that happens here. Satan becomes directly involved. Uh, Look at verse 30, John chapter 13. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So Judas the betrayer goes out, and uh, he and Satan look like they are in control, everything is happening, and they are going to betray Jesus, and is going to lead to His death. Uh, You'll also see here at the end of that verse 30, and it was night. Uh, This seems to be not only descriptive of the time, the Passover meal happened at the same time all of the time, uh, year after year, so this would be common uh, it wouldn't be unusual for it to be night, but that John most likely puts this in here describing the darkness that had entered in. It's kind of a play on the words. It was night, but it was also a, a deep darkness that was coming over everyone, the betrayer, Satan entering into the betrayer, going off to sell Jesus, and the night was going to be a long, long night for the disciples. Now, in, in summary of this passage today, uh Certainly in chapter 13, John teaches the sovereignty of God in all things Uh, through the perspective perspective of Judas, and we we wonder about Satan, we really don't know, we don't have much insight there, but it might seem like they were in control, and the betrayer was in control. Yet there is one who truly has control over all things, and that is a point that is heavy in the book of John, chapter 12, chapter 13 as well. That God is in control. Everything had been given to the hands of Jesus. Everything is going exactly as planned. This happened, this betrayal betrayal happened to fulfill scripture, right? Everything is going exactly according to God's revelation. He's still in control. Also, we want to be aware of the extremely good Christian camouflage that unbelievers can wear unbelievers can be around christians and not yet truly be a christian many times christians can even can't even tell the difference because the unbeliever is so good at acting and we'll cover some of that in discipleship today Uh, we should also check ourselves make sure that we're not relying on our geographical places or or the people around us that to To make us a Christian. There has to be real faith. There has to be real repentance. Uh, Do you personally trust in Christ for your salvation and repent of sin? That's something that we need to ask ourselves. Uh, Though the disciples were all fooled by uh, by Judas, we find that Jesus was never fooled. God knows the heart. And we see this throughout the book of John. And God knows all things. So he knows your heart. He knows who his own sheep are. And his own sheep believe in him, his own sheep follow him, and his own sheep can trust him even during chaos, even when it seems like there is disorder all around and you're wondering is God still in control, you can rest in knowing that God is still in control and all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord, who've been called according to his purpose. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are sovereign and and in control over all things. And even though we find ourselves sometimes, like the disciples on the night of the betrayal, running scared and doubting and not knowing which end is up, or like Job facing all of his tribulations and trials and wondering why, why, why. Help us to recall these words even, even here. That, that Jesus was affirming that he is the great I Am. He knows exactly what is going to happen in the future. He knew the chaos that was coming, and yet he is still the great I Am. He is sovereign. Lord, help us to apply that aspect to our lives, knowing that even when things seem out of order, even when things seem chaotic, that you are still sovereign. You're still on the throne. You have perfect knowledge of our life and our situation And that nothing can separate us from the love that you have given us through Jesus Christ. And we can rest in that love. We can rest that you know exactly what we're facing. And we can continue to trust in you no matter what. God, I pray that even today as we go over this passage, if there is anyone who is relying on Uh, Perhaps just being around Christians or in church, etc., but not having faith in Christ for their salvation. May they see the error of their ways. God, we pray that you would grant them true salvation today. Draw them to to Jesus Christ for salvation. May they see their sin and see that that sin needs to be punished and will be punished eternally. And if they don't listen to the prophet, they will die in their sins. May they see that today, Lord. May they listen to the gospel. May they have faith in Jesus Christ for their salvation. And God, I pray that we would passionately pursue uh, you.